Welcome to No Baller. I am Chris Rawl. On today's show, I'm going to be talking about the biggest story in the world of sports. Aaron Rodgers, my favorite player of all time, does not want to play for the Green Bay Packers anymore. My favorite team. As you can imagine, I have many, many, many thoughts. All of those will come right at you on the other side of a word from our presenting sponsor, the finest meat grillers in the history of meat grilling, Traeger Grills. With your Traeger invented the original wood-fired grill over 30 years ago in Mount Angel, Oregon. They continue to lead the industry as the world's number one selling wood-fired grill, perfected by decades of mastering the craft of wood-fired cooking. You can find out more at TraegerGrills.com. The Green Bay Packers lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFC title game at the start of this year. It's a sad time for all involved, me most of all. Uh, and Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, he had a press conference after the game where he was very reflective and you could feel the weight of the loss upon him and the realization that he's at the tail end of his career and that this was going to mean a lot more now than, than it might have meant in the past. And Rodgers had a quote that I want to start today's show with that will set the stage for all of this discussion. The Packers have a lot of guys' futures that are uncertain, myself included. That's what's sad about it most, getting this far. Obviously, it's going to be an end at some point, end quote. So Rodgers is a really reflective person, much like myself. I like looking back on the past and saying, what can I learn from it, what does it mean to me, all the things that I incorporate into this show. And so I heard that quote and, and I listened to the press conference, which for me was pretty hard to watch because again, I could feel the weight of that loss on him and I felt the weight of the loss as a fan. And I go, yeah, this guy realizes the end of his career is nearing and he doesn't get many more chances to win a Super Bowl and to prove to people that he is the big winning quarterback who gets all the Super Bowls, which has been a knock against him in his career, which in my opinion is unfair, and I'll get to that later on. And I just watched Green Bay lose to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in a game that had everything that I love and despise about a game of football and how much of it just comes down to the whims of chance. And I go over each individual play and decision of the loss. And I go, man, that was the wrong time for Kevin King, the Packers' second quarterback, to have far and away the absolute worst game of his career. He was an abomination on the field. He couldn't cover anybody. And it cost the Packers dearly. And that somehow reflected on Rodgers. I think about the uncalled pass interference near the end of the first half that led to Rodgers' lone interception. A play that ended up setting up another chain of events where the Packers botch a defensive play call and there's communication wires getting crossed between what the defense should be running and what they are running and what Kevin King should be doing and how much safety help he has on a play that should have been inconsequential and, and the Buccaneers kick a field goal going into the half and instead turned into a Scotty Miller long touchdown play that was a, a huge turning point in the game. 
And that reflects on Rodgers. Again, somehow. I think about the start of the second half when the Packers go, okay, we got to buckle down. We're going to come out and now's the time. And Rodgers hits Aaron Jones on a crossing route and he gets blown up after a few steps and the ball pops out and Tampa Bay picks it up, runs it inside the 10-yard line and sets up an easy touchdown. Again, just a play that has nothing and everything to do with the game, but they build up over time, all of these little things. And the way that we process it and talk about it, it all reflects on the quarterback, regardless of whether or not the quarterback was even involved with these random whims of chance. Think about Matt LaFleur not telling Aaron Rodgers that on the biggest play of the game, third and goal, Packers down eight, clock's ticking down, they're inside the 10-yard line. He doesn't let him know that he's contemplating kicking a field goal if they don't get a touchdown. So the Packers don't get third down, and I'm sitting here on pins and needles watching it in this office going, all right, touchdown, two-point conversion, it's a tie game, there's no possible chance that Green Bay could ever comprehend that a field goal would be the right thing to do right now. I, it didn't even cross my mind. I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just thinking, how are they going to score on this play? They got to get a touchdown. Uh, I mean, what kind of player are they going to call? And the next thing I know, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are going, all right, Mason Crosby's coming out. And I'm sitting here going, that's impossible. How would that ever cross Matt LaFleur's mind that this is the normal thing to do? Come to find out after the game, he goes, yeah, I... I don't know. I, maybe I botched that one a little bit. You know, coaches are as prone to making mistakes under pressure as players are. Something that we do forget. And so now Green Bay's kicking the ball back to Tampa Bay. They're down five. And everyone on planet Earth knows exactly how the story ends. Because when you play that conservatively, the stars align and they say, you can't win a game like this. You just can't. You're not trying to win. You're trying not to lose, the old cliche. And so they boot it back to the Buccaneers who need to get a first down to close out the game. And on the biggest play of the game to that point now, uh, the refs decide to call pass interference on Kevin King in a game where an unbelievable amount of pass interferences were not called, including on the lone Rogers interception I mentioned before. And that's the time they chose to throw the flag and First down Tampa Bay, game over. They go to the Super Bowl. They win. And we watch Aaron Rodgers after the game, walking around. You know, there's all sorts of camera shots and pictures of him where he just looks old. He's got kind of rings under his eyes. <laughs> and he looked like he'd aged five years during that game. And honestly, he might have. Because I think Rodgers is hyper aware of the things that I am hyper aware of as a Rodgers fan. That he is judged upon, by and large, the actions of those around him. He's judged by and large that Aaron Jones fumbled the ball. That Kevin King couldn't cover anyone. That Matt LaFleur wanted to kick a field goal. That Mike Pettin didn't know what defense was being called and he was the defensive coordinator. All of these things Aaron Rodgers is hyper aware of. It's very unfair and it makes no logical sense but this is what my career is going to be judged upon. So he walks around the field and he goes into the post game and he gives that quote and I'm watching it. And, and I think about that line, you know, I think about it's going to end at some point, just a inevitable fact of life. You live 
for X amount of years, you die. That's the name of the game. And you have a bunch of things within your life that follow that same cycle. They're there for a set amount of time, whatever it may be. And then after a certain point, there is an end and it's gone. So as Roger's career is worn on, he's aware of that. As his career is worn on, I, as a, an incredible, <laughs> the biggest Aaron Rodgers fan that you can find, I'm super aware of that because in my life, I walk around every day and people know that I love sports and they come up to me and they say, Chris, talk to me about this. Aaron Rodgers, why, why did he do this? And I go, oh, what are you talking about? I'm going to get in a big argument now because the number one thing that, that irks me is this idea that the quarterback wins or loses and it's all on him and everything that anybody does reflects on him. And, and it's why I always push back on it when people get so fired up about anything Tom Brady does, a great quarterback in his own right. But I look at it and I get really envious because I look at the situation he's been in his career compared to Rodgers and I go, these are not comparable situations. These are not the same thing. It's not very fair that we celebrate one as the greatest quarterback of all time because his team has won and we piss upon the other because his team has not. So we go into the offseason and I don't think the end is coming right then, but I'm also aware that the end is coming soon at some point because he's getting older and because there's been little clashes in the past between him and management and draft night. Everything comes to a head. I'm on hole two of a golf course. My buddy goes, hey, have you seen this tweet from Adam Schefter? It's the day of the first round. And I go, "Don't. what is it? Don't. Uh, do I want to know? He goes, not really, but he tweets out that Aaron Rodgers is unhappy and he doesn't want to play for the Packers anymore. And I go, that's not coming. Is that the real Adam Schefter? He goes, he shows it to me. There's the blue check. I go, well, that's great. Let's, okay, let's do this whole song and dance again. So now, since then, it's consumed the world of the NFL and actually kind of the world of sports. Every single talk show is talking about it. You see trade proposals. He could go here. Denver, he could go here. And it's led to a lot of reflection from me about how we talk about Aaron Rodgers, my favorite player of all time. So we're staring down the barrel of a trade, him wanting to leave my favorite team. And in this debate, everybody has chosen a side. A lot of people go, Rodgers, he's surly, he's a baby, he's not a leader like Brady is. And other people are on the side that I'm on, which is this team has not shown the sense of urgency the other high-quality teams have shown when they understand we have a quarterback who has a finite championship window and we will do anything in our power to maximize that. So Brian Gutekunst, the current GM, Mark Murphy, the current team president, they're on one side and they're fighting this battle. And Aaron Rodgers is on the other side and they're clashing. And Matt LaFleur, the coach, he's kind of caught in the middle. Pretty, pretty big rock and a hard place situation for him. Because he knows in order to succeed, he needs Aaron Rodgers. Because that's the best player on the team. That's the alpha and the omega of everything they do on offense. And yet he's also dependent upon what management gives him. What they fill the roster with. What they get in the draft. What they sign in free agency. All of those things. He, he's got to be the middle point between those two things. 
So I look at it and I go, I want the Packers to be successful because they're my favorite team. And yet I'm frustrated with them because why would you not cater to your most valuable employee? If you have a 5,000 person business and you have one specific employee who is responsible for the vast percentage of your success, you would always go out of your way to make sure that person's happy. Say, what do you need? And that person would go, well, I'd like my own bathroom. And you go, done. They go, you know what? I'd like beef jerky in the pantry that I can eat whenever I want. Done. There you go. Bunch of Slim Jims. And yet the Packers have seemingly gone out of their way to act in the exact opposite manner over the last few years. It's not to say they haven't made some good moves, whether in free agency or in the draft, to supplement this team. And I will get into some of this in a, in a second. But just the simple human relationships, the simple human relationship aspect of how do we form a, a bond with our most valuable employee and make sure that person, person is happy, the Packers have not done that and, and indeed have kind of gone the other way. They go out of their way to alienate Rodgers. They don't tell him that they're going to draft Jordan Love last year in the draft as his successor. They don't ask him, do you want us to cut Jake Kumaro, one of your friends and a, and a wideout who's not actually very good. But the point is, it's not hurting the team to fill in one of the tail end roster spots with a person who you're very best player wants to be on the team. That's pretty common practice throughout football. The Buccaneers will go to Tom Brady and say, do you want someone? And he goes, I'm friends with Antonio Brown, sign him. And they go, okay. A dude who has a pretty checkered pass when it comes to the law and just random acts of strangeness over the last few years and is perceived to be kind of a team cancer when he was on Pittsburgh. Sure, we'll sign him in a heartbeat because you're Tom Brady. And we want to show you that we value you as an employee. And we want to show you that we are willing to maximize your ability to win now. I want to read to you a quote from Danny Heifetz of The Ringer when it comes to the aspect of team building uh, for certain teams relative to the Packers. Last offseason, Tom Brady left the Patriots for the Buccaneers. And Tampa Bay did whatever it took to surround him with a talented offensive supporting cast. It traded for Rob Gronkowski, drafted prize lineman Tristan Wirfs, and signed Leonard Fournette and Antonio Brown as free agents. Over the past few years, the Saints took salary cap gymnastics to the extreme to provide Drew Brees with playmakers for his final few playoff runs. They brought in players like Emmanuel Sanders and Jared Cook while keeping their entire core intact. At one point this offseason, the Saints were $100 million over the cap. Say what you want about New Orleans' wild spending habits and history of trading away draft picks, but nobody can doubt its sense of urgency. End quote. Sense of urgency. My number one complaint with how the Packers have created a team and tried to maintain a winning culture through Aaron Rodgers' career. And it didn't stick with me in the early days because the future was wide, wide open. And the Packers were coming off a Super Bowl win in 2010. And Rodgers had come out of the blue to turn into this mercurial superstar who played quarterback unlike anybody else 
and we were just ready for the Packers to sweep the NFL off its feet and win a bunch of Super Bowls. They come out the next year and they go 15-1 and in the best season of Aaron Rodgers' career. To this day, the best season of quarterbacking I've ever watched. And the future was wide open. And if you just paused that point in time, you came to me and you said, Chris, what do you think is going to happen for the next while with the Packers? I would say, well, they're going to win a lot because they have Aaron Rodgers. And in my mind, having Aaron Rodgers was the only thing that mattered. And then from an organizational standpoint, I assumed the Green Bay Packers would go, we have the ultimate trump card. We have the best quarterback in football. And so all we need to do is make a few little moves on the sides to slide things into place and we'll win more Super Bowls. And it seemed like that was just going to happen. It seemed like it was going to be a piece of cake. They lose to the Giants that year in the playoffs in an upset. And the next thing you know, years are going by. And the Packers have always had this same strategy where they want sustainability for the future. And they're willing to mortgage a little bit of the present in order to maintain this safety net down the road. And again, at the time, it didn't bother me, me as much because the future was wide open. I said, yeah, you're going to have Rodgers for 10 years. I don't want him blowing every draft pick and signing all these free agents and tying up their cap for the next couple of years. And then Rodgers is 26 or 7 in the middle of his prime and the Packers have kind of pissed their pants. I don't want that. And so it made sense. And yet, as the years go by, and now we're 2015, and now we're 2017, and the Packers are still building with the same strategy, and I'm watching other teams who have quarterbacks that are in their championship windows do the exact opposite, I go, well, I don't like this as much. This is kind of problematic. And in fact, it's a disservice to who I believe is the best quarterback of all time, Aaron Rodgers. So we get to 2019. And Aaron Rodgers has played under the same coach his whole career, Mike McCarthy, uh, an atrocious football coach, one who is not good. I just, I watched every meaningful moment of Mike McCarthy being a coach and every meaningful moment of Aaron Rodgers being a quarterback and seemed at times that Mike McCarthy was actively trying to detract from Rodgers' ability to play quarterback. Played with him for over a decade and the Packers finally go, yeah, maybe this guy isn't a good coach and maybe we should get someone else in here. So they fire Mike McCarthy. They bring in Matt LaFleur, the unknown commodities coming from the Tennessee Titans as their offensive coordinator. All we know about him, he's from the Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay coaching tree, which is the most quarterback-friendly system you can find. So me, the hopeful side of me goes, all right, I'm going to see Rodgers in a real offense, not this rinky-dink Mickey Mouse stuff that Mike McCarthy was running out there, essentially roll the ball out and Aaron Rodgers make magic, run around in the pocket in a circle while your offensive line can't protect you. And then once the actual play breaks down, which isn't good to begin with because nobody can get open, then we'll have a scramble drill and your, your receivers will run in circles and it'll be a backyard playground. And Aaron Rodgers made that work because he's a talent unlike any other. And so we excused Mike McCarthy's coaching and nobody really concentrated on how bad of a coach he was until later on in his tenure. 
because the Packers were going 11-5 and and 12-4 and and 10-6 and solely because Rodgers was good enough to drag all of his surroundings into the playoffs and then lose to much better teams and then be judged for that. So 2019, they switch to Matt LaFleur. The Packers go 13-3. and Their offense isn't clicking on all cylinders. Kind of a, a piecemeal fit. At times it looked good. At other times, not as much. The Packers were actually pretty lucky to go 13-3. and And there were a lot of metrics that pointed towards this team is not as good as its record and they're going to get hammered on at some point in the playoffs. So the Packers beat the Seahawks. Now they're in the NFC title game. And I go, they're not as good as the Niners, but the NFL playoffs have shown us that one random game can come down to simple chance. So I'm believing in that side of it, but I know the team is infinitely worse than the Niners. They go in to San Francisco and they get monster mashed. You know, Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't have to even throw a pass. They're just running the ball at will on what was one of the worst rush defenses in the league that year in Green Bay. And Raheem Mostert's just gashing him 20 yards at a time. And they, they pound on him. You know, Green Bay doesn't stand a chance. It was not fun to watch. It was kind of embarrassing at times. Just because it looked like Alabama playing against Louisiana Monroe. Like that level of physical dominance from their run game where Green Bay would just stand there and their line would get pushed back five yards. There'd be a hole uh, as big as a garbage truck and most of it would run off. And so I look at that and I go, okay, this team is not as good as its record. However, there are a lot of pieces in place that I like. The offensive line is getting better. Matt LaFleur, I, I see glimmers of something there with how him and Rodgers work in unison in a scheme that is built around a quarterback. Devontae Adams is getting better. I like that. They made some signings in free agency. The most notable being Zadarius Smith on the defensive side of the ball. I really like that. He's their best defensive player that year. One of the better defensive players in football. I go, I like all those things. Okay, there are some pieces. And Rodgers is still playing good enough that you supplement that a little bit. And this is a bona fide Super Bowl team. This is a team that can win right now. So we get to the NFL draft. The best and easiest way to provide your team with an influx of talent at a cheap cost, if you evaluate that talent correctly. And the next thing I know, the draft day controversy of last year ties into a similar theme as this year. The Packers trade up in the draft to number 26 to get Jordan Love, quarterback out of Utah State. And then in the second round, number 62, they draft A.J. Dillon, tailback out of Boston College. On a roster that already has Aaron Jones, very good running back in his own right, and Jamal Williams, who very reasonable backup tailback. So I want to pause this and read to you another quote from Danny Heifetz at The Ringer. Even more mind-numbing is that Green Bay's first two picks... Love and Dylan were third stringers from last season's playoff run. Love is the only offensive player the Packers have taken in the first round since 2012, but he wasn't active for a single game. Tim Boyle was the backup quarterback. Dylan was a reserve running back. Coming off a 13 and three campaign, the Packers used their first two draft picks to take players who did nothing to improve their roster. Meanwhile, the Bucks drafted Werfs who started at left tackle, and Antoine Winfield Jr., 
a defensive back who started 16 regular season games and then picked off Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. End quote. So as part of this endless need within me to speak with people about this Rodgers and Brady comparison and how it's never really reflective of the truth. It is to a certain point. Tom Brady, very good quarterback. Aaron Rodgers, very good quarterback. I don't think anyone will really ever debate those two things. But once we start getting into cross comparisons, it never really rings true to me because of a lot of the things that I'm talking about, about the way that the Packers are always content to kick the can down the road in a way that the Patriots weren't, the Buccaneers with Brady currently aren't, the way that the Saints in the later stages of Drew Brees' career have definitely not been. And it frustrates me to no end to see quarterbacks in very different situations, supplemented by very different ways that a front office can build a team. It frustrates me to see those compared to Rogers' situation, which is vastly different, and to hold Rogers accountable for incompetence or a lack of desire to win now in those other areas. So we go to this year and we all expect regression because while Green Bay was 13 and three, a lot of numbers point to a team that was not that closer to a 10 win team than a 13 win team. The ball bounces a certain way and that's how you have those extra three wins. The underlying numbers did not speak to that. And yet this year, Things click into place. The second year of a new play caller with a quarterback as gifted as Rodgers, as smart as Rodgers. That's a special thing that can happen. We've seen that in the past with other quarterbacks and play callers. Shanahan and Matt Ryan in their second year when Ryan wins the MVP comes to mind. We saw it last year with LaFleur and Rodgers. Rodgers leads the Packers again to a 13-3 and record. He's the regular season MVP. He leads the league in completion percentage, passer rating, QBR, adjusted yards per attempt. His touchdown to interception ratio, 48 to 5. Highest touchdown rate in the league, lowest interception rate in the league. I can go on, but you'll understand the point. He was everything to his team, and he was the best at that in the league. At a position that does carry the most value, albeit not as much as we think. Seems to me like that's someone you want on your roster. Especially in a league right now that is head over heels for quarterbacks and doing everything in their power to get the quarterback that they need. And yet the Packers were firmly in a championship window. They've built certain aspects of their roster in a way that are, are great. They provided Rodgers with an offensive line that last year when it was healthy... Unfortunately, David Bakhtiari, their best offensive lineman, tears his ACL right at the end of the regular season, is not there for the playoffs. But when they were all healthy, that was one of the best offensive lines in the football. And Devontae Adams was godsend last year. The connection with him and Rodgers was superb. You know, first team all pro wideout. Aaron Jones, great out of the backfield. Even Jamal Williams, he was, you know, within the structure of the system provided by LaFleur and under what Aaron Rodgers gives to an offense, which is everything 
Jamal Williams is still successful. That's something that I think we discount when it comes to a player like Rodgers. It's not simply all of these numbers, which again are last year, they're the best in the league in almost every category. It's what he provides to an offense simply by virtue of being on the field. It's the fact that a defense has to know Aaron Rodgers can make any possible throw anywhere on the field. So we can't pack the line of scrimmage like we do against Drew Brees and his noodle arm, like the Buccaneers did in the playoffs. We can't afford to do things like that. And, and now you back him up with a play caller like LaFleur, who is willing to set up plays over the course of a game like all the greatest play callers do. And it leaves a defense's head spinning in a way that it never really has throughout the course of Rodgers' career. The part that has frustrated me greatly about the Packers when I come back to why we're at the point we're at, where Rodgers is dissatisfied with this organization, that, that other people go, well, he should just be happy. They do have a good offensive line. They have Devontae Adams and, and all these things. And I go, that's fine. That's great. Again, they're not completely incompetent. They have good aspects of how they build a team, but they never show the sense of urgency that the very best teams show. When I think about that, it frustrates me greatly because Green Bay has always demanded absolute perfection from Rodgers in order to win in a way that has never been true for somebody like Tom Brady. And that is true to the nth degree when it comes to the playoffs. Green Bay has never been able to cover up for any Rodgers blip in a playoff game. That's not how their team is built because they never have truly gone all in on a season to win. And so they go into the playoffs because Rodgers is so damn good that he will always carry, if he is healthy, he will always carry a team to the playoffs. And yet when they get there, and I look across the field and go, that Tampa Bay Buccaneers roster is infinitely better. So you're going to have to be absolutely perfect in order to win. That's an unrealistic expectation to ask of any player. And I'm not talking about perfection in the sense of you can't afford to throw an interception. You can't afford to have a strip sack fumble. I'm talking about perfection in the sense that you can't afford to miss a throw. There will be a limited amount of times that your receivers are open. So you can't miss that. And the windows are going to be small. And you're going to have to read everything on the field at once. And you can't afford to miss a read. And you can't afford to take a sack in this certain situation when your offensive line breaks down. You got to dance out of that. Like all of these things have been demanded of Rodgers throughout his entire career. And no quarterback can hold up under that standard on a team that has always had inferior roster talent and up until LaFleur has gotten there, inferior coaching to the teams they're going against in the playoffs. So I think about that cross comparison, uh, how we always have this Brady Rogers debate. And one of the frustrating aspects coming out of the Buccaneers Packers, Packers game. And what I think weighed so heavily on Rogers and on me of this sucks for many reasons. First and foremost, his career is dwindling and there are limited amounts of chances that he will ever be in this situation again. Uh, but B, he went against Tom Brady, one of the people that people always compare Rodgers to. And he lost, which in the cut and dry black and white terms we love talking about quarterbacks in, led the entire googly-eyed Brady crowd to go, well, <laughs> this is just 
anybody who ever says that Rodgers could possibly be better than Brady is an idiot because he beat him in the playoffs. And I go, that seems rather unfair uh, based on all of these random things that I talked about from that game, based upon the fact that Tom Brady has never, his team has never asked him and demanded perfection of him in order to win. That's why he can go into that NFC title game and throw three interceptions and win. That's why he can go into two other playoff games in his career and throw three interceptions, including an AFC title game against the Chargers back in 2007 and win. Something that Aaron Rodgers has never done in his playoff career is throw three interceptions because if he did, the Packers would have lost by 50 points. We have Packer blowout losses over the course of time where Aaron Rodgers played well, but was not perfect. And even with that perfection, the Packers still probably couldn't have won. That's something I can't wrap my head around when it comes to comparing situations like Tom Brady's career versus Aaron Rodgers that are so different, it's almost not even worth talking about. It's interesting that the defining plays of their playoff careers when it comes to Rodgers and Brady don't actively involve them. This speaks to something that I am so passionate about that I want to just jump through your headphones or this video screen and, and, and slap your head until you can comprehend it, okay? Quarterbacks have a lot to do with whether or not a team wins. If you're breaking it down into percentages, it is so freaking small. We're talking 5%. We're talking 10%. And so as an exercise before this show, I go, what are the most memorable moments of these people's playoff career? And so I think about that because I've watched football for all of time and I've watched all of these people's careers. Watch everything from Brady. I've watched everything from Rodgers. And I go... Okay, Tom Brady's playoff career. First thing that comes to mind is first season that he wins the Super Bowl. You know, how a referee interprets what the tuck rule is. Charles Woodson comes in, strips the ball, looks like a fumble. And the referees go, no, there's this little known rule. It's called a tuck rule. And the game would have been over because the Raiders recovered it and they could have taken knees. But instead, the game continues. And so then what's the next thing I remember? It's Adam Vinatieri booting field goals in that game, one at the end of regulation to tie it and one in overtime to win it in a snowstorm, this incredible snowstorm. And you hear all these stories after the game. It's kicking the ball 35 yards in those sub-zero temperatures in a blizzard. It's like kicking a 90-yard field goal. The ball was a rock, weighs 50 pounds, all these things. You know, it takes a Paul Bunyan feet of strength just to get it off the ground, much less kick it over a defensive line that's actively trying to block it and then being accurate enough in these swirling winds in a snowstorm to kick it through the uprights. Adam Vinatieri comes to mind. And then he comes to mind again because the defining play of the Super Bowl, it's him in a dome drilling a field goal to beat the greatest show on turf. Then I think more. I go, yeah, it's weird. The first stages of Brady's career when I think of the actual playoffs, they're more tied into Vinatieri kicking. He, he drills a game winner again to beat the Panthers. And that famous back and forth Super Bowl. Steve Smith going out of his mind for the Panthers. And then Vinatieri booting one in at the end to win. 
I think of Malcolm Butler's interception against the Seahawks. A play that already is crazy, but becomes even more crazy when you think of the chain of events that had to set it off. The Seattle Seahawks are down at the one-yard line with Marshawn Lynch. His nickname is Beast Mode. He's known for short-yarded situations, his ability to run through people and break tackles. And yet with the clock ticking down and the game almost at its end, and the Seahawks needing a touchdown to win, instead of handing it off to him, they decide to try and throw a quick slant with Russell Wilson. And on the flip side, New England has somehow prepared their defense for this moment. And Malcolm Butler knows that if you see this certain look, it's worth it to take a chance to jump the route because it can result in an interception. Coaching on both sides tie into this. And so what is going to be a Seahawks Super Bowl win, suddenly Malcolm Butler jumps the route. He picks it off. Nobody really knows what's happening. I don't know. Watching at home, I go, what just, what? And the next thing we know, the Patriots have won another Super Bowl. Another thing that comes to mind, a more recent one, D. Ford lining up offsides in the AFC title game. Just lining up offsides, not jumping offsides. You know, not a play that happens sometimes. D. Ford lines up offsides. He's offsides. He just puts his hand down, you know, a little bit further than it should be on a play where he doesn't do anything. He doesn't affect it at all. And with the clock dwindling in that game and the Patriots down, Tom Brady throws an interception. Again, that would have ended the game. The Chiefs would have taken the knees and gone on to the Super Bowl. And D. Ford lines up offsides. And so a flag comes out. And the Chiefs are celebrating. And then they look over. And they go, what happened? And they go offsides, you know. Uh, game continues. Patriots go on to score and win in overtime. And that is a defining play of that game. So you think about all those plays. And I go, it is kind of crazy that the plays I most register in my mind with Tom Brady's playoff success, and I don't, I, I want to stress this a, a bunch. This is not to say Tom Brady is not a good quarterback. I think Tom Brady is a great quarterback. But the amount of chance and the amount of dependency upon your situation that goes into quarterbacking is not really thought of in, in terms that I think it should be. And so you have a playoff career where all of these notable moments, they have nothing to do with the person that we celebrate for those moments, which is very strange, right? And on the flip side of that, I go, what are the things that I think about when I think of Aaron Rodgers' career in the playoffs? The very first thing that comes to mind, which I've told the story on this podcast, the Brandon Bostic onside kick fumble in the... 2014 season. It was January 2015 NFC title game against the Seattle Seahawks. He recovers it. Packers take knees. They're going to the Super Bowl. They're going to play the New England Patriots, a team that they'd beaten at the tail end of that regular season. And yet he fumbles and Seahawks win the game. That's an interesting game in its own right because if you want to talk about the way we perceive what should reflect on a quarterback's legacy. Rodgers carries the weight of Bostic not being able to recover an onside kick. And that 
that game is on his resume as look how little Rodgers has done in NFC championships. He's only won one. And we use that as our Stone Age way of thinking. He simply has lost a lot in the NFC title game and he's only won once. And therefore, he's not as good as the person who has won more in the same situation. And I look in that game and I go, it's weird that just because the Seahawks win, we will never remember the fact that Russell Wilson threw four interceptions in that game and was atrocious. He was absolutely atrocious. But because he had the very best defense in the league at his back, because Brandon Bostic dropped an onside kick, because the Seahawks won the coin toss and got the ball first so Rodgers never had a chance to come on the field, because of all of the things that go into a football game that are complete random chance, we don't remember that. And that's something that we'll look at on Russell Wilson's resume and say, hey, he won that game over Aaron Rodgers in an NFC title game. He must be a better quarterback. Going back to Rodgers, I think of the 2011 season, his best regular season. Uh, they play the New York Giants. And the play that I always think about from that game is Eli Manning throwing a Hail Mary at the end of the first half. That's caught for a touchdown with no time. And it just catalyzed this game of, oh no, the, the football gods are not on our side and it snowballed and the Packers lose. I think of Colin Kaepernick running roughshod over the Packers defense in multiple years in the playoffs. The most famous one is when Green Bay goes into San Francisco and all the memes coming out of the game about the Packers not knowing what a zone read is because Colin Kaepernick would simply snap the ball and fake a handoff to a tailback, and the entire Packers defense would collapse onto that, and Colin Kaepernick would run right around the edge. And this was not the introduction of the zone read. It had been around for years, and yet Dom Capers, the defensive coordinator at the time, it seemed like he and his entire team had never seen it ever once in their entire lives, nor prepared for it, despite the fact that San Francisco 49ers constantly ran zone read with Colin Kaepernick. And that somehow reflects upon Aaron Rodgers. The most recent example, Matt LaFleur kicking a field goal. The coach who deemed it to be reasonable that down eight with less than four minutes to go inside the 10-yard line of the opposition, you should kick a field goal and trust in your defense that has never shown a propensity to get stops, to make a stop, to turn the ball back over to your offense, which still would need a touchdown in order to win. You would still need the same thing that you had a chance of doing inside the 10-yard line. You would still need that thing. All of these things define Aaron Rodgers' playoff career. This is something I could argue about till the end of time. It's something that I wish we just talked about in a more sophisticated manner when it comes to quarterbacking and when it comes to winning and losing. And how much of the actual game can any individual control? How much can Aaron Rodgers control when there are 11 players on offense and 11 players on defense and 11 players on special teams and an entire coaching staff with different ways of thinking and game planning and tying all those things together and a front office that has different philosophies, philosophies, if I can speak, on how you build a team, what constitutes talent, all of the things that go into team building, whether or not it's valuable to Make your best player happy. Stuff like that. It's stuff I can't 
wrap my head around. And yet here we are in present day and Rogers wants out and more people than not are going, ha yeah, Aaron Rodgers, whatever. All the stuff that I hate about the Aaron Rodgers narratives, they're coming to the forefront. And so I think back on his quote because the nostalgic side of myself comes to the forefront. It's going to end at some point. Maybe we're here right now. I was aware of that after the NFC title game. I'm obviously more aware of it now, but I've been aware of that for the past five-ish years. I go, the Packers are running out of time to maximize his Super Bowl window. I love watching this player play because he's so unique and so fun. I don't know how much more I will have the opportunity to do that, period, much less on my own favorite team. And so I'm really going to try my best to love everything that happens in the moment while also being very frustrated about the way the Packers have chosen to sell Aaron Rodgers short as an organization. So when the nostalgia seeps in, you know, my mind, much like I've been going over these Rodgers playoff memories and the Brady playoff memories and what comes to mind, when I think about Aaron Rodgers specifically, I go, what do I actually really like think about? And there's one memory that most of you probably wouldn't tie into being the defining memory of Aaron Rodgers' career. And yet for me, it kind of is. It's the 2016 playoffs, January of that year. Packers are playing the Arizona Cardinals. I'm down in Las Vegas. I've gone down there on a golf trip, me and three of my friends. So we go and we play these sweet courses. That play we, or that day, we play 36 holes at Reflection Bay, a really cool golf course in the Las Vegas area. It's, it's my dream day because I have that. We go through it. It's a grand old time. And then I go, all right, we're going to find a casino. We're going to settle down into a sports book because this game, it's going to mean a lot. And it's going to be fun to watch Aaron Rodgers at the very least. So we go through the golf day. We settle down in this forgettable casino. One of the ones that just pop up around Las Vegas that are small and dingy and not on the strip. And yet in that atmosphere, a sporting event seems even bigger than it already is. Because now you're with people who have money on it. And you have people who are fans of the individual teams, me being a Packers fan. So I settled down there with my two friends. And a couple weeks earlier, the Packers had played the Cardinals. And that year, the Packers were completely riddled by injuries and just a deficiency of talent on the roster in general. So they play the Cardinals and they get smashed. 38-8 to eight is the final score of that regular season game. Aaron Rodgers is sacked eight times. He's running for his life. I vividly remember watching that game. And going, they should just take him out of the game. They shouldn't run him back out there. There's no way that Green Bay can win. He has nobody to throw to. He has nobody that can run. He doesn't have an offensive line that can block. And it was a jailbreak on every single snap. The Cardinals, who had a great defense that year, were just teeing off. And they'd come in and they would cream him. And they sack him eight times. And it was, it was disaster for Green Bay. So now they're meeting again in the playoffs. And the Rodgers, who still have that same roster and that same deficiency of talent, in addition to injuries at their skill positions that year, now they're playing a game that, in the back of my mind, I go, it's just really not possible for them to win this game. Even knowing that there's a small part of me that believes with Aaron Rodgers as your quarterback, anything is possible. So it's close. And they're kind of going back and forth. And if you just look at Rodgers' stats from that game, 24 for 44, 261 yards, two touchdowns, one pick, 
it's just a bleh Aaron Rodgers game. Actually, not good by his standards. But it was the situation of what the game demanded that made it very memorable for me. It was the fact that his pass catchers in this game, the only people who caught a pass on his roster, Jeff Janis, Jared Aberderis, Richard Rodgers, James Starks, Eddie Lacy, and John Kuhn. I'll bet most of you don't know who most of those people are. And the ones that you do, it's probably Eddie Lacy, who was their tailback, who sadly enough, ate himself out of the league shortly thereafter. And John Kuhn, a fullback who is known for being celebrated for his capacity to get one yard on third and one by running a fullback dive into the line and getting one yard. And then the entire Packers crowd would chant Kuhn. Kuhn. That's what we remember about these people. I mean, Jeff Janis and Jared Aberderis, his two main pass catchers of the game, those are practice roster players that were signed out of necessity because no one was there. So you hear all that, and the game is somehow back and forth. And the Packers get the ball back, and they're down 20 to 13. And it's the final minute of the game. And I'm in this casino, and I'm breathing in cigar smoke and cigarette smoke, and my eyes are red because who knows what's going on with all of this stuff, right? It's just the feel you get in a casino. And it's great. I'm, I'm loving it. And I'm there raging after every play and my friends are rooting alongside me because they know that I'm a Packers fan and they want them to win for my sake. And there's a bunch of people who are rooting for the Packers because they bet money on them as the underdogs that night. And, and it's that camaraderie that comes from watching a sports game in, in a setting like that. Something that I crave and love. So they get the ball back. There's less than a minute to go. They're backed up on their own goal line. It's a fourth down play. And I go, it doesn't matter. This game's over, you know. And yet, this was at a time when Aaron Rodgers had somehow tapped into this spiritual energy where Hail Marys seemed predictable. He'd thrown one earlier that year, which ended up being the swing game to get the Packers in the playoffs against the Lions on a Thursday night. This high arcing pass that seemed like it goes straight into the air and it hangs up there for two minutes. And then it falls out of the sky and Richard Rodgers catches it with no time on the clock and the Packers win. That's how they get in the playoffs that year. The following year in the playoffs, he throws another Hail Mary at the end of the half against the Giants to Randall Cobb, who's tippy-toeing in the back corner of the end zone. It's dropped out of the sky, like on a vertical descent, like the most somehow perfect pass in the history of passes when you would never talk about how a Hail Mary could be a perfect pass. It doesn't even make sense. You just throw the ball up in the air. And yet it seemed like Rodgers could somehow dictate what a Hail Mary pass would be and where it would go. So it's fourth down, and he's backed up in his own goal line. They call a rollout left. He spins around, and he goes and he throws a Hail Mary from his own goal line on this fourth down play. It's like fourth and 20. And improbably, Green Bay catches it. Jeff Janis. And so now, oh, I go, okay, the Packers don't have timeouts. They're running down. They're spiking it. They're around midfield. Okay, well, at least we're going to have a chance to throw at the end zone. So they have a couple plays, and it comes down to this final play. There's one play left in regulation. And I go, no, I mean, it's just, it's not possible. And yet, at the same time, despite everything I know about what is surrounding Rodgers at this time, uh, there's always the part of me that goes, with Aaron Rodgers, 
anything is possible. So I'm standing up in the casino with all these people. Me, my pseudo-Packer fans, because of the money they've placed on the game. And Roger starts doing the same thing. He's rolling out left. And this time, the Cardinals are getting to him much quicker. And so I'm watching it, and I go, Rodgers doesn't have time to throw. And he can't possibly muster up enough strength to throw the ball to the end zone. With these people running in from his right-hand side, and he's got to stop and set himself and throw a ball 50-plus yards downfield. You can't do that. That's not humanly possible. That's not the way the human body generates power. And yet, the next thing I know, Aaron Rodgers, who's made an entire career off of throwing passes that defy everything we know about what is indeed possible for the human body and how it generates power. He's in air. He's not planted or anything. And he's flicking it with his wrist as he's falling left. And the ball's arcing up. So now we have the moment. Okay, Hail Mary coming on in. Who's beneath it? Is there anybody that's there? He somehow has gotten this pass off against all odds. And on the television screen, we have a Packers player. It's Jeff Janis again. And the next thing you know, he's got two Cardinals defenders around him, and they're all jumping. Jeff Janis, who is not a very good football player, but his one skill was he was tall. He's now jumping up, and he's trying to high point this ball in the end zone. And I'm there in the casino, and my hands are on my head going, is this even possible that this could happen again? And it looks like he catches it, but he comes down inside of everybody, and I go, is this happening again? And the ref's running in and signaling touchdown. And now we're looking at it on replay. And I'm freaking out in the casino. And everybody's freaking out. And I'm going, yeah. And it's just one of those things that encapsulates everything that a fan could love about sports. So they rule it a touchdown. And it's now the Packers are down one. And I'm going, I'm Green Bay. I know I have the worst team. And it would make sense to go for two right now. Mike McCarthy thinks differently. He kicks the extra point. That's fine. I, uh, probably most coaches would do that. And yet, I always know how this story ends when it comes to Aaron Rodgers' career. And indeed, it ends in the same way that it has almost always ended with the exception of 2010. Uh, the Packers lose the coin toss for who gets the ball first. Cardinals choose to receive. Larry Fitzgerald breaks an enormous play on the first play of overtime. They're inside the 10-yard line. Two plays later, Larry Fitzgerald scores a touchdown. Game, set, match. And it's another one of those examples of something we can hold against Aaron Rodgers, a playoff loss. Uh, it's not something we're going to celebrate, which is what I always look at in those types of scenarios and go, how can you ever say that this was anything less than spectacular, that a player dragged the most sorry surroundings with him into the playoffs and did everything in their power to try and win and came up short. How would you ever hold that person to account for doing that? How is that a black mark on their resume? So when I think about that line, it's going to end at some point. This is what comes to mind. And I'll remember this game probably above all else because it represents the overarching theme of Aaron Rodgers' career. One in stark contrast to a career like Tom Brady's. These spectacular plays that border on the spiritual for someone like me, that cover up inadequate talent and coaching, but ultimately succumbing to a better team 
and to random, simple chance. Thank you for listening to No Baller. This podcast can be found on any platform of your choosing. If you could rate and review and help spread the word, it would help me immensely. If you have additional feedback or thoughts that you want incorporated into the show, please email me at chris at thebeehive.com. Last but not least, if you would prefer to listen to this as a video, go to thebeehive.com and find No Baller.